0: so you can start turning ideas into action. And when you use the link, you're supporting Intelligence Squared too. That's Notion.com squared. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta, tomorrow you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Hello and welcome to Intelligence Squared, where great minds meet. I'm senior producer Connor Boyle. On the podcast today, Michelle Lamont, the Harvard sociologist, discusses her new book, Seeing Others, which looks at how we assign value and recognition to our fellow citizens. The book analyzes how this process is constantly influenced today by an era largely dominated by increasing inequality. Joining Michelle in conversation is Sophie McBain. Sophie is Associate Editor of The New Statesman and often writes on issues such as psychology, the outlook of wider society and the places where those two fields meet. Now let's join Sophie McBain and Michelle Lamont in conversation.
1: Michelle Lamont is a Professor of Sociology and African and African American Studies at Harvard University and she is a pioneer of cultural and comparative sociology. Her new book, Seeing Others, how to redefine worth in a divided world, argues that we have lived for too long with the neoliberal idea that our worth is defined by our wealth and our achievements, and calls for a new way of thinking about how we value ourselves and others. She believes we need to realize that social recognition, the experience of feeling seen and respected, is a crucial component to our well-being, and that we need to collectively write new stories, new cultural narratives, that afford equal respect and dignity to everyone, regardless of their race or gender or age or sexuality. In this book, she speaks to the change agents, among them activists, artists, writers, comedians, and young people who are laying the foundations for a more inclusive society. Welcome to Intelligence Squared, Michelle. Thank you, Sophie. The central argument of your book is that social recognition, feeling seen and respected, is as central to well being as things like money and power, and that culture can be as important um, for determining the shape of a person's life as economics. And I wondered if you could say a little bit more about that and about why social recognition has traditionally been slightly overlooked.
2: Sure. There are a great many reasons why it has been overlooked. Uh, some of it has to do with um, this moment, which is offered. Called a neoliberal moment in our history, with a strong focus on um, you know individualism and self-reliance, and our ability as individual to pursue uh, success and material accumulation. Um, and uh, the social sciences as a whole are really based on a materialist assumption. It goes back to Marx, and uh, we are often uh, teaching students uh, about, to think about self-interest, which is often defined in material term. However, uh, we know that uh, the literature on uh, subjective well-being today very much uh, emphasizes the importance of um, being valued by others. And conversely, there's a huge body of literature showing how the microaggression that comes with everyday experiences of racism translates into what epidemiologists called allostatic load, the wear and tear of everyday life that gets under the skin, which has all kinds of implications for uh, subjective and physical well-being. So I think uh, also when you interview uh, workers about what they get from their work, often they put uh, you know the relationships that they build with their coworkers. Uh, uh they view this as as important as the material resources that they obtain from working so I think that really oh, these are only a few facts that can encourage us to to try to rethink some of the basic assumptions there's a new book by um Stephen Hetlin and uh, his co-author Anderson titled the Science of Dignity that also provide really ample evidence of the um, you know whether we call it recognition respect of dignity, that these are really essential to, um, to human
1: well-being. Yeah, and how did your interest in this subject develop?
2: Well, I had the idea of writing this book. Uh, you know, I've been working on questions of dignity for a long time. In 2000, I published a book titled The Dignity of Working Man, which was a comparison of French and American workers in Paris and New York. In 2016, I published another book titled Getting Respect, uh, responding to stigma and discrimination in the U.S., Brazil, and Israel, and uh, with the Trump presidency, uh, like many other people, I was a little shocked to see the ways in which, for instance, he was uh, stigmatizing Muslim with a travel ban to a number of Muslim countries early on in this presidency in February, I believe, of 2017. So. I felt it was really really important to uh, to try to give the general public the tools to think about recognition because those tools are not so readily available in the public sphere. I mean many people talk about wokeness, but that is very different than under putting really shedding light on on uh, some of uh, you know the centrality of recognition to creating a society that uh, empowers us to to be more and to be happier, basically. And I should say, um, I was, like many people, depressed during the, the Trump presidency. So I was thinking about where do we find hope? And I read the social science literature on this topic. And the answer is that hope comes to human beings from being uh, exposed to narratives that allow us to imagine an alternative reality, so that's why the book that we're discussing today is very much focused on uh, interviewing and learning from people whose job it is to produce new narratives and also interviews with young people, Gen Zs, people born after 2017, who themselves were very much struggling with mental health problems during the pandemic. And when we interviewed them, a lot of them are very much focused on trying to find alternatives to the American dream and new ways of finding hope at the time when they experience really a, a, a future that they view as a dead end for various reasons.
1: And I wondered about this idea of recognition, and how social scientists think about it and measure it, because it seems like such a complex slippery subject because you might you might for instance to some people seem like an elite and yet you're not accepted by who you'd imagine would be your peers like if someone is labeled nouveau riche or being say a woman in academia and feeling like an outsider or there could be this disconnect between how people say they value you and then the microaggressions you experience that make you realize that you're also victim of unconscious or subconscious bias. So I wondered how sociologists try and get a grip on this kind of slippery concept and how you can measure it over time.
2: Yeah, well, at most basic level, uh, recognition is understood in the f- mostly philosophical literature, the people who start writing on this early on is Hegel, the philosopher, and then more recently, philosophers such as Axel Hanet and Nancy Fraser, and they simply define it as uh, defining a group uh, positively. The counterpart is this notion of stigma, which was elaborated in sociology by Irving Goffman, which is defining groups uh, negatively. So there are many ways of Uh, you know, measuring this empirically. It has to do with self-image. The literature on identity is full of information on this. There's also one handy uh, way of thinking about it is a disconnect between self-identification, what what is my identity to myself and how it is perceived by others negatively which is often described in social identity theory as group categorization and there's there, uh, there's often a disconnect between those two things so as a woman i might think of myself as autonomous smart dynamic but other people perceive me, let's say, as an older woman. I'm in my 60s, so dowdy, losing it, not entrepreneurial, like, you know, sleepy, whatever. So there's a lot of identity work that is done by everyone. That's basically what our book on responses to racism is about. You know, how do people do a lot of work to to try to create more um, uh You know, connection between these two definitions of who I am. And it's difficult to measure because much of this is happened in the context of a social process. Enter subjective definition of reality. You define me and I react by saying, no, you're wrong. It's not who I am. So what we found in the comparative book on getting respect in Bra- where we have black people in the U.S., Brazil, and Israel is that African-Americans in the U.S. confront. That's their response to stigmatization. Whereas uh, we found that black Brazilians uh, often were very uncertain whether they were victims victim of racism or they were uh, discriminated against as poor people. So they were far less likely to want to confront uh, because they simply had a lot of uncertainty. And a lot of what this book does is emphasize how the environment in which we are empowered African Americans. You know, you had the civil rights movement, you had all kinds of legal changes that recognized the, you know, how, pervasive uh, racism is for African-Americans in everyday life. And there's also a lot of work done amongst themselves to check whether what's happening, you know, and to confirm, yes, this guy's a racist. And therefore I'm entitled or I should confront him in this bigotry. So, um, you know, my contribution is not at all to talk about a measurement. That's really more the focus of uh, people who study perceived racism. My colleague, David Williams, for instance, it's really more to try to understand how alternative interpretation of what's happening are possible and how this is enabled by the narratives that su- surround us. If we are in an environment where there's never any, uh, yes, let's say, you know, US, American society, 1920, I mean, it was much harder for African-Americans to, to receive messages that racism was was uh, a deep attack on their dignity. Uh, whereas in 2023, 20, uh, in American society, it's omnipresent. It would be extremely difficult to, for them to miss this. So really, the narratives that surround us are key to understanding how this works. So I would say more generally, the book is far more oriented oriented toward getting people to get an understanding of how this works. That's really my primary objective, much more than measuring. You know, I'm not an economist. That's not what I do. I try to make people understand how relationships
0: unfold. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com squared. That's netsuite.com squared. netsuite.com squared. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder.
1: And when it comes to narrative, I wondered if you could say a little bit about the the um, the kind of impact of this kind of grand narrative of the American dream and I felt thought one of the things that was really interesting and kind of sad is you describe it as more an American delusion and the people might realize that the system is rigged and that not everyone who works hard can make it but they tend to think that they might be the exception that maybe if they worked harder, they would make it. And how does that shape a person's sense of self-worth and, and sense of social value? Yeah.
2: Well, it's been a very powerful myth for much of the 20th century, after all, there are waves upon waves of immigrants who came here believing that this is a place where it's possible to, to improve your your uh, situation and the fate of your family. But uh, now we have several decades of growing inequality, not only in the U.S., but other advanced industrial societies. So that's not only an American story, but we also have had, uh, you know, this neoliberal turn that I mentioned earlier, you know, symbolized by the election of... Thatcher in the UK and Reagan in the US, which really a great emphasis put on uh, market fundamentalism. You know, the state becomes a tool for uh, accelerating all forms of market exchanges and the individual who is not able to exercise self-reliance because becomes deeply stigmatized as, you know, welfare dependency is also greatly diminished so our young people come to adulthood in a context where uh, they have before them the millennials who entered the job market in twenty eight, after 2008, after the Great Recession, and that generation is not able to buy houses. They are not very few of them make babies. And also, it's a, both generation—the millennials and the Gen Zs—are very critical of consumerism, in part because of their concern with climate change. So the idea that we should, you know, live to acquire the big house with the a green lawn and the the big car, and that we should constantly buy clothes—you know—they call this. Um, the hedonistic treadmill, and it's uh, viewed as illusionary. So if you don't believe that this dream is likely to become reality, where do you turn? So what we find in the 80 interviews we conducted with the Uh, Young college students, uh, middle class and working class students in the Midwest and the East Coast is that often instead of this are embracing the idea of living their best life now, which for them means um, uh, trying to live authentically. If they are gay, they don't want to be in the closet. <laughs> uh, if they are experiencing racism, they will express their, their strong feelings about it. And uh, at the same time as they embrace authenticity, they also embrace trying to create a better society today, which is a society that they define as inclusive. So one could say that this is just wokeness, that but for them it's a really a reality that they feel they have no choice but to push for, given uh, the alternatives that have really vanished. You know they are very critical of any universalistic perspective. And um, they strongly believe that uh, we should be able to lead our best lives now. My, I remember I was teaching an undergrad course at Harvard two years ago during the pandemic, and one of them said, I want to be able to bring my best self to the classroom. And I asked, what does that mean? And the students uh, said, well, I want to be able to be entirely here. I want to be able to express fully um, my views here. This is not the space where I should be hiding or I should be censoring myself, uh, that's part of the learning experience. So uh, I uh, I think it's important to understand where they come from so that when they promote, uh, for instance, non-binary uh, pronoun, uh, they they are strongly committed to, to this or to unisex uh, restrooms. Uh, while this may seem extremely self-indulgent and uh, not necessary from the perspective of Many boomers, I think we have to understand where they come from and why, for them, uh, accepting uh, or promoting this it becomes the symbol of what kind of society they want. And I'll conclude this little uh, observation by an anecdote. Uh, last summer, the American Sociological Association was holding its annual meeting, and the, the, the council had decided that, you know, our little labels that we have. With our name on it, uh, in the past, it was always, um, you know, under the name, you had the institution where we teach. So in my case, Michelle Lamont, Harvard University, I walk in the hallway, people see this, people want to talk to me because I'm at Harvard, but many people felt that this um, use of our institution was deeply stigmatizing for people who are not in elite institutions, so they pushed so that instead of having name of our institution, we would have the pronoun. So you can imagine that many boomers were absolutely incensed by this change because they felt like, first, they don't want to be called they, them. They don't want to know what pronoun. So there was a huge divide at the meetings. The reaction around this change was really quite powerful, which is, I think, in itself very telling. I mean, instead of not, of simply describing the young people's reaction as as wokeness and indulgence I think it's really important to try to understand why where they come from and why it is important to them because the reality they've experienced, is very different from the reality I've experienced as I was a 20-year-old in uh, in the early 80s when uh, the job market was not perfect, but we all had a certain sense that there was openness for us ahead.
1: So you were happy to remove the Harvard from your Yes, from absolutely. Your it, yeah. It's become more
2: complicated uh, in the US to be associated with these uh, elite institutions in part because even if, in my case, for instance, the my approach to sociology, I mean, I'm an expert in the reproduction of inequality. So I've always studied how it is that inequality works. And I'm focusing on the cultural dynamics that are behind this. And uh, people some often presume that because I'm at Harvard, I'm more of an elite and a guardian of the status quo, while in fact, I'm really interested in how cultural change occurs. So uh, personally, also by now, I think, you know, I don't necessarily need to proclaim my my status <laughs> as I operate in uh, professional circles, you know, I'm much more interested in having interesting, uh, innovative, original exchanges than anything else.
1: But that's interesting, because it's it's a sort of example of being willing to give up some of your status or privilege for the greater good. Is that often a sticking point in, when it comes to cultural change that people don't want to give up their privilege that um, I know you you write about things like affirmative action and and middle class parents not wanting to send their child to the local school which would improve the school in their district um, but instead segregating themselves and how do you get people to act against their personal interests in that in those contexts
2: yeah well I talk about this phenomenon that sociologists write about called opportunity uh, hoarding. Which is the idea that we should uh, uh, privileged people should be free to to pass on all the privilege they have and all the resources they have to their children, so that their children do as well as possible. And over the last few years, there's been a lot of criticism of this. Uh, you know, people have written about uh, helicopter parenting and excellent sheeps. And they have certainly, which is, you know, those kids who are so much encouraged to be overachievers. But what we know also is that these pressures have created enormous mental health problems for young people. There's a real epidemic of uh, mental illness uh, in that generation in the US, in part because I think while doing this, the parents send to their kids the message that you will be unconditionally loved if you succeed extremely well. And the kids end up feeling like they don't matter, which is why, you know, there are a lot of people now talking about mattering and addressing the mental health crisis by making their kids understand that they matter no matter <laughs> how well they do. So that's one dimension. And the uh, so the book has all kinds of, you know, statements about what to do about opportunity ordering and closure, uh, and the idea also that it uh, it really benefits uh, children to be exposed to a wide range of people. So, in this neoliberal con- context in which we live, the if we have a single hierarchy or matrix by which we measure people's worth, which is socioeconomic success, uh, tons of people who feel unworthy. So the, one of the idea that I promote in the one of the penultimate chapter is really to try to define a more uh, pluralistic view uh, approach to understanding worth. An example would be, uh, you know, employers who are uh, recognizing that their workers are not only producers, but they're also caregivers. So they can adjust uh, working hours so that the employees can Bring their elderly mother to the doctor, or take care of their kids um, when the school is off, and doing this translates into far more loyalty uh, for the employees toward the uh, their employers, and uh, is much better in terms of mental health for everyone as well. So, I think um, in this context of uh, growing inequality a lot of people who are privileged come to understand the downside of putting so much emphasis on, on materialism when it comes to children, that it's their well-being may be much better served if they join forces with um, their neighbors to create a more healthy society. So where I live, for instance, in Brookline, Massachusetts, which is part of Boston, basically, we have a Republican um, governor who recently passed a law to really uh, encourage uh, all communities that are served by public transportation to have more affordable housing. And, of course, with the NIMBY movement, you would think that there would be a lot of objection. But, in fact, there's a lot of support, in part because a lot of the uh, younger couples, uh, or even middle-aged couples, are extremely concerned by the environment. So here you have a case where climate change it comes to the rescue, if you will, to really bring a lot of support to build uh, multi-family housings and uh, also affordable housing so that the population density is increased instead of people having large lawns and more cars, etc. So I think there's really a shift in uh, in some of the the younger people, you know, in how they think about uh, these issues of uh, of opportunity ordering. And also, what is gained by having their kids uh, attend schools that have more diversity? Raising your kids with, I've seen it certainly around me, uh, with other extremely privileged kids is not necessarily very beneficial to them because they end up living in a very rarefied environment. And with, um, you know, they certainly... are impoverished by the lack of exposure to to differences.
1: In terms of shifting narrative as well, um, it was very interesting to read um, your observation that narratives around attitudes towards homosexuality in America have shifted so dramatically since the 70s, but also in the last two decades. Um, And I wondered if you could say a bit more about how that, was achieved and what lessons we can learn from that to apply to other forms of discrimination and stigma.
2: Yeah, I the book discusses uh, groups that used to be deeply stigmatized and have become less stigmatized to say that uh, social change is happening and that more can happen and by pointing to who was involved in the creation of change to demonstrate the kind of collaborations that have been productive. And that's a little bit of an argument against, you know, the psychologists who argue that we're all tribal and that this idea that we're, by definition, uh, naturally we are what uh, wired to, to like people like us and dislike people who are not like us. The, arg- the, the book is very much an argument against this perspective. And I give, I mean, I talk briefly about the case of the you know spread of uh, sex, same-sex marriage which uh, as soon as it was passed in 32 states there was a rapid decline in the number of uh, lgbtq youth who attempted suicide because the existence of these laws uh, were interpreted by many people as a message that they belong, that they are full citizens, and that who they are gives them access to the most sacred uh, institution of our society. I go in much greater detail in a comparison uh, about uh, people with HIV AIDS and people who are obese. Uh, the first group was uh, extremely successful at becoming destigmatized between 1880 when i came to the us i was in palo alto at stanford at the beginning of the aids crisis and today where people with hiv aids are not discri- are not stigmatized anymore people are not scared of them at the beginning it was very much viewed as a pro- you know moral failings uh, gay men uh, be- being promiscuous in public backrooms get punished by <laughs> by becoming you know sick with aids and uh, the book, sh- the book shows how there was a collaboration between social movement leaders and participants uh, together with social uh, knowledge producers. So that includes legal expert, medical experts, social scientists, journalists, who all worked together to really broaden our understanding of what caused AIDS and to remove the stigma, the moral blaming. And that was extremely successful. But you also had important People like Lady Di, who came to the US and removed her gloves, and was, you know, p- there were pictures showing her uh, shaking the hands of uh, people with HIV/AIDS, and Magic Johnson, this tall, Uh, athletes coming out very masculine saying, I have AIDS, everyone can have AIDS, I can have AIDS. And then this collaboration between knowledge workers and uh, social movements participants did not happen for people with obesity. It was very stigmatized 40 years ago, and it remains very much so. Although there are now popular artists such as Lizzo, who are really militant about body acceptance, but the change is much slower because people who are obese are often blamed for their lack of self-care, laziness, lack of education. They're defined by lacks as opposed to and you know the militants were pushing this notion of healthy at any weight, but the medical profession was just extremely reluctant, although many people became much more critical. Of the uh, BMI, so body mass index, as a measurement. So things are moving, but so much slowly. But uh, these two cases are presented to tell the reader you see, things are changing, and much more is possible. So at the same time, I acknowledge that there's a lot of backlash. Like, of course, right now in the U.S., it's a moment of great backlash against trans rights. So, whatever is acquired is, you know, the, the process of institutionalization is. You need to reach a point where those changes cannot be undone. And with the Supreme Court that you have, we have now in the U.S., a lot of very important things are getting undone. But, uh, you know, the uh, the, uh, the, the idea that you have a great arc of moral progress that uh, Martin Luther King and Obama both often referred to has uh, come under question seriously, but at the same time, if we look at uh, social change in advanced industrial societies since 1945, there's no doubt that many minoritized groups and women have gained a lot of rights that they didn't have then. So it's it can be slow progress, but it's happening.
1: Yeah um what did the change agents you spoke to the the writers and artists um what were their methods that they that they used to try and shift narratives were they sort of very conscious about the methods that they were using or was it through speaking to you that you you I know you talk about things like sort of trojan horse uh-huh. methods yeah. and things like that 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 terminology came out?
2: Sure. So we did 185 interviews with people whose profession involves transforming narratives. So this involves policymakers such as uh, Heather Boucher, who's on the council, you know, the current Council of Economic Advisors of Biden, Agent Pooh, who is a labor. A leader for the National Alliance of Domestic Workers, all kinds of people. But this this group also involves 75 Hollywood creatives, as well as stand-up comics. And uh, together with some of my research assistants, we did interviews with all these people to understand, you know, many of them were saying, uh, when we asked them, what motivates you? What do you try to do as you're telling your jokes? Uh, they came up with this idea that uh, they're not forcing people to eat their vegetables, you know, they're not going to just come out and be uh, lecturing people on diversity. But a lot of their messages has to do with, uh, you know, maybe making fun of people who are racist or maybe talking about their own reality as South Asian individuals or as, you know, queer or, and um, so we developed a kind of typology that includes, you know, the idea one, so the Trojan horse is this idea of, you know, you plant messages in your jokes, or we talk about uh, see it to be it, which is about the power of representation. So uh, especially among stand up comics, and I know very well that it is the case in the UK, as you know, as as well that they play a very important role in uh, offering alternative. Another group that is connected to uh, this is um, people who are creating uh, shows that are being streamed. So one of them, the show Transparent, uh, I interviewed um, Joyce Holloway, who is the creator of this show. And when I talked to them, they said, uh, I created this to uh, help people make the reality of trans people, help people view the reality of trans people as less aberrant, you know, or abhorrent to the idea that, oh, that's, this is a middle-aged woman who is now trans and she's trying to get her kids to understand her life as a trans woman. So, and everyone negotiates their relationship with their kids, not only trans people. So, The language they use to talk about what they aim to accomplish with their work is very much to make people more human, uh, to make them less stereotypical, to provide three-dimensional portraits of people who people are, to represent them in the way that they would like to be represented, but also to represent them in a way that is dignified and not ridiculed. So these words are constantly used by the people we interviewed across various fields, to talk about what they're trying to accomplish in their work,
1: I was um, I was so struck. I know you said at the beginning that hope is something so important, and I was struck by your finding that young people are becoming more optimistic. And I thought that was fascinating, given that given that this is a generation living with kind of the very very real uh, present threat of climate change and the pandemic. And um stark inequalities and the various backlashes against trans rights against women's reproductive rights. Um, and I wondered where where this optimism is coming from.
2: Well, I wouldn't say that they're all optimistic. We interviewed them uh, in the fall of 2019 and we interviewed them again during the summer of 2020. So that's really, you know, in the heat of the Black Lives Matter movement. And I would say their position was much more something like, the world is really going terribly. We have good reasons to be doomers. We don't want children, but we have to, if we want to continue to move forward, we have to find hope somewhere. And when you find hope is in the capacity to transform societies. So I use the term jet Zs, although many uh, demographers and sociologists are critical of the term because it's offered to us by marketing experts. And it's very hard to uh, disentangle what is due to age, period, effect, etc. But they very much define themselves as Gen Z's for which, by which they mean people who are deeply politically motivated, you know, they say, we're now in the cockpit, move over boomers, you know, you screwed up with the environment, now we're the ones who are going to create tomorrow's society. And that is very apparent in the current moment of strong unionization in the U.S. where there's a lot of victories that unions are experiencing. But they're often in sectors where you have a lot of young workers, Gen Zs and millennials who participated in the Black Lives Matter movement, and they are very um, upset about social injustice. So just last week, there was a major victory from the uh, the automobile workers union and uh, since their corporations had been saved by the federal subsidies a, a few you know years ago they felt very strongly that uh, they deserved a very important salary increase but it was not only about salary it was also about dignity and about their work conditions and uh, i think what we see is a major focus on on recognition claims among workers across the board, whether the Amazon workers who were asking for uh, time to go to the restroom or the UPS workers who wanted to have uh, air conditioning in their truck, in their cabins. So this is not only crumbs that are given to them. These are uh, also demands that have to do with them wanting to be viewed and wanting to be workers whose dignity and human needs are recognized. And I, I, these uh, a lot of the recent writings on this renewal of uh, uh, the labor movement in the United States is very much tied to uh, to what young workers want. It's not the old, you know, fifty year old, uh, you know, father figure. <laughs> who is just fighting for for having more money. It's much more complicated than that. What they want, they want a society that is more fair. So that, I think, this commitment gives them hope. And that's why they are so adamant. And some people would say so woke. But this for them, I think is largely a question of survival. Because if they go with the order, the the traditional order, you know, they first they may think that a lot of the job that will give them access to the big house are alienating jobs, they they want to have a life that is, uh, you know, that allows them to be who they are. So And also, they don't don't necessarily know how long they're going to be alive, given what's happening with the the planet. So I think that really gives them a very different timeline in how they think about what they want to accomplish with their lives.
1: Is this generation very unusual because of this historical moment, or... I mean, what would you say to someone who's like, well, you know, actually, young people always want to change the status quo. They always want to do work differently, love differently, family differently, and then they end up living a lot like their parents in the end. Yes,
2: well, that is. I mean, is that yeah? That is certainly something that has been said about the boomers, and the boomers certainly, and I'm one of them. You know, there was the sexual revolution, there's the gender you know, second wave revolu- uh, feminism, there's a lot of things that my generation did. But recent studies of what happened to the uh, the boomers 40 years later, is many of them have continued to be innovative in ways, but what it means to be promoting social change 40 years later, we never talked about pronouns 40 years ago. And yet there are things that were truly significant in terms of social change that are now entirely taken for granted. So, um, you know, the definition of what progressive means certainly changes with times. And yes, the young people are more open to uh, to change. But at the same time, it uh, varies a lot with social class. You know, uh, half of the college students we interviewed have parents who are middle class. The other half have less privileged parents. And the less privileged students were much less likely to view themselves as revolutionaries, not because they don't want to be But because they said, especially during the pandemic, uh, we can't because we have to help our parents pay their bills. So and uh, one of the next step for my studies will be to focus more on the non-college students in this age group because their orientation is very different.
1: Yeah, and I suppose to pick up on this word woke, that there are also people on the left who are very critical of identity politics and who say, you know, it's it's a diversion from what really matters in terms of thinking about big economic structural reforms. And it's very alienating. People get scared about using the wrong language. It's, it's language that doesn't translate well beyond campus. What's your response to that kind of line of attack from potential allies, I suppose, people who would themselves also call themselves progressives?
2: yeah, I mean, I feel like sometimes uh, these uh, thinkers uh, are kind of glorifying universalism and uh, are not fully attuned to how much all forms of universalism have for have come under really strong attack, including the notion of human rights, for instance, which is perceived by at least half of the planet, half of the planet as a form of Western. Ideology. So I think it requires a little bit of humility to uh, presume that what you believe are universal values should be embraced by everyone. Um, They may not want these. These thinkers might not want to acknowledge the importance of recognition. But I think. Uh, recognition is something that we can all have. It's not like a pie where if you get a piece, I don't get any. Uh, We can all gain recognition at the same time. It's true that it is associated with resources, but uh, the book very much argues that if we are to focus more on um, the objective of broadening who belongs and who doesn't belong, it will be a major contribution to our collective uh, quality of life. And I don't think that the arguments I've uh, seen about wokeness contradict uh, this perspective at all. So it's no question there's been a lot of abuse in the name of wokeness and cancel culture, and uh, but there's a lot of abuse in the name of human rights as well or in the name of universalism. So I, I think also that the focus on materialism is very much a focus of a certain era. I think, you know, in academia, Uh, the Marxists who were materialists were equally into cancel culture as the woke people. (laughs) So I think this is more about uh, openness to pluralism and ability to, to converse with others who don't share our opinion than it is about anything else. I mean, the term go, wokeness has come to be assimilated with all, all vices, you know, while in fact I think a lot of it has to do with the deterioration of a culture of deliberation that uh, needs to be really uh, strengthened and, uh, you know, re-dynamized, in, not only on campuses, but everywhere.
1: Yeah. And as a final question, for people who are listening to this and thinking, well, what can I do as an individual to contribute to building a world that is inclusive, that affords people the dignity they deserve and they want? What can any individual do?
2: Well, yeah. Um, I would say in general, my answers are more at the level of what kind of society, how can we structure our environment differently, so that we're more readily exposed to, uh, you know, ideas that will encourage us to use a plurality of criteria of worth instead of simply focusing on socioeconomic status. I also talk a lot about ordinary cosmopolitanism, which has to do with emphasizing what we all share as human beings. Uh, there's, you know, I refer to interviews I conducted in the early uh, 1990s for the book, The Technif Working Man, for which I interviewed a lot of North African immigrants <coughs> working in France. And I asked them, what makes you similar and different to French people who, you know, these men were victims of racism every day. They, many of them were illiterate. And they were Really draw on their everyday experience, saying things like, well, we all have to get up in the morning and buy our bread at the baker, or we all have nine months in our mother's womb, or we all have 10 fingers, or they're good and bad people in all races. And these are themes that are also very central in the working class. And for this same book, I kept hearing comments such as, you know, you have to treat people as people. And that's one of the points of tension, because a lot of the working class men that um, Trump aims to speak to and to defend uh, will easily draw moral boundaries toward uh, minority groups, minoritized groups, and also, you know, blame these groups for uh, lacking self-reliance. Yet, at the same time, they embrace the notion that you have to treat everyone, people as people. So they are supporting populism in part because they object to elitism. And as we're thinking about the 2024 election, I think one of the big challenges is to figure out how to create a bridge between uh, young people who are really embracing this uh, these values of authenticity and uh, inclusion at the same time as the Democratic Party aims to not entirely lose the workers who uh, who, who uh, are, uh, you know, really pulled, I think, between their desire to treat people as people and at the same time feeling, um, you know, very upset at uh, uh, the groups that they perceive as not pulling their weight. So um, there's, um, these, these are among the big dilemmas ahead. I wish I had clear recipes on how to address them. But I think, you know, often when you publish a book, you're asked to write things for business journals, where they ask you, what are the five concrete things people can do tomorrow? And I say, no, what we need to try to do is, you know, understand where people come from, we have to understand what is their lived reality, and what leads them to to understand the world the the way they do. So understanding is probably one of the main things that we can ask, both groups, frankly, young and patient people in the white collar world, the, 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 the working class that feels downwardly mobile to try to to, um, to demonstrate a greater understanding of other groups.
1: Yeah, well, it's been such an interesting discussion. So thank you so much, Michelle. That was Michelle Lamont, author of Seeing Others, How to Redefine Worth in a Divided World, available now from Alan Lane and Penguin Books and at a bookstore near you. I've been Sophie McBain. You've been listening to Intelligence Squared. Thanks for joining us.
0: Thanks for listening. This episode was produced and edited by Tom Hall. You've been listening to Intelligence Squared, where great minds meet.